Welcome to Business Unmuted, which is today a special focusing on Deloitte's annual State of the State report. Thanks to our sponsor, Virtu Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers, representing some of the world's best manufacturers of cars, vans, motorcycles. Check out its website at virtumotors.com. Now, I'm Graham Robb. I've owned recognition for 35 years. We've got more than 70 clients in lots of sectors, and between them, we have about a, a turnover of about £6 billion and employ around 30,000 people. So we are at the front line of what's happening in the business community and the ideally place to discuss the economic climate. Today, my guest is Ed Roddis, Director of Public Sector Research at Deloitte. Ed is responsible for research and thought leadership, which includes Deloitte's flagship annual State of the State report, which we're discussing today. And it's an ideal day to discuss it because uh, tomorrow the government's budget will be published and you might be listening to this podcast or watching it at the weekend after the budget so this will give us some insight into the background thinking of what's happening <clears throat> in the public sector as the budget is made ed welcome tell us about the report tell hey Graham, thanks for means. having me so the state of the state is an annual report on government and public services from deloitte and the think tank reform it's been going since 2012 in fact so in westminster terms that's four prime ministers, six chancellors and seven <laughs> business secretaries ago, I think. Um, and what we try and do is produce an evidence led view of what's happening across government and the wider public sector. And we do that by bolting together two forms of research. On the quantitative side, we get Ipsos UK to do a survey for us with a nice big sample size so we can report down to the level of the English regions. And then on the qualitative side, we interview public sector leaders. This year, we interviewed 54, in fact. So they include ministers, permanent secretaries of government departments, council chief executives, NHS trust chief executives, police chief constables, the full breadth of the public sector. And those interviews give us a really human, colourful, rich picture of what's going on across government and public services. So we bolt those two things together and that gives us this state of the state. Now, you've covered an area of time uh, that has embraced the pandemic at the beginning of 2022, right now to the cost of living crisis that we're embroiled in. And, and do you find that when you're talking to these people, the television news that maybe viewers uh, and listeners watch at home reflects the actual issues that they are dealing with? Or are they looking at issues that may be coming up as big public sector considerations in a few years' time? A bit of a bit of both. I mean, to some extent, it's a, it's a chicken and egg, isn't it? Because we we own the state. The, the 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 public sector is there for us to support our society. So public sector leaders are acutely aware of the need to do that and reflect what the public wants. But then, of course, there's this kind of overlay of of politics, which can sometimes make the public sector bound to these kind of four year electoral cycles. So I think it's a bit of both. But actually, when you do talk to public sector leaders, they are more forward thinking than the politics would sometimes lead us to believe. Now, this week, the government will have announced its budget. And obviously, that affects everyone in how much tax people pay and how much spending is available for the different public departments. One of the areas you looked at is public spending. What kind of simple conclusions did you come from from the public themselves, particularly geographically based? 
Okay, so yeah, this is a really lively debate, isn't it? The levels of tax and spending we have in the UK, and then the growth plan, the the ill-fated, I guess, growth plan that was published in September, really stoked up uh, this whole debate. So we wanted to understand in the report what the public think, what's the public's preference um, for the balance of tax and spending. So we asked them, do you want lower taxes, even if that means lower levels of public spending? Do you want the balance to stay about the same? Or do you want higher public spending, even if that means you'll pay higher taxes? And what we found in the report this year across the UK was a really split picture. A third of the public, 33% said, give us those lower taxes. Mm. 29% said, give us higher public spending. And 17%, uh, the lowest proportion said, we want things to stay as they are. Now, my takeaway for that is that the public want change. The majority of the public want a change in direction on our levels of tax and spending. But there's no real consensus on which direction they want to go in. Now, that said, split picture across the UK, there were some interesting regional differences, Graham. So in the northeast, the northeast is the bit of the UK where people are most likely to say, give us lower taxes, even if that means lower levels of public spending. 40% of the public in the Northeast said, give us lower taxes compared to 33% the UK average. And the, the region that was the second most keen on tax cuts was Yorkshire and Humberside. 38% of the public in Yorkshire and Humberside said, give us tax cuts compared to 33% UK average. So, Graham, you are living in the heart of tax cut territory. Yes, absolutely. And and you see that. But also, you know, you look at the people that people employ and my own staff. Uh, no one pays poverty wages that I know, but the wages are lower. And um, yeah. although there are other things to compensate for that, for instance, housing is lower and to a certain extent, trans- some, some extent, transport costs lower as well. But perhaps the actual perception, if you are on a lower wage, is you have less disposable income. Uh, and that like, can be true in real terms, can't it? I think that's absolutely it. And I think that's what we're seeing play out in this survey. People are wanting to keep more of their income. They're worried about their household incomes. They're worried about supporting their families. And when we asked a similar question in the austerity years of the last decade, 60% of the public at that point were saying, give us higher public spending, even if that means higher taxes. So I think you often see public attitudes reacting to what's going on around them. Well, there will be uh, higher taxes. I'm sure they will have been announced as people are watching this repeat uh, at the weekend. But um, we'll see what the uh, the result is like when people well. poll that next year in your state of the state. Now, what about the what people want to spend money on? It appeared that there was a lot of uh, public interest and commitment from officials into the net zero agenda. Yeah, definitely. So so in, in our interviews with public sector leaders, we found some concerns about the net zero agenda, actually, because when, when you're stuck in a cost of living crisis coming off the back of a global pandemic, you have to deal with these kind of in your face crises. So there were concern, some concerns around public sector leaders that net zero felt a bit too bolted on to what they do. And it needs to be part of their day to day in order for the public sector to change the dial. But we came up with some interesting findings in our survey on public priorities. So we asked the public, 
what are your priorities for government to improve? What do you most want to see improved in the years ahead? And the top answer across the UK was the cost of living crisis. Like 81% of the public said that. Second most popular answer was NHS waiting lists. Of course, we're now upwards of 6 million people on waiting lists in the country. So unsurprisingly, 66% of the public said government should prioritise that for improvement. The third biggest priority was climate change. And it's interesting that over the summer and the autumn, there was lots of commentary in the press about whether or not the government was going a little bit soft on net zero and climate change. And I think what we saw in the survey was a reaction to that. I think it was the public saying, deal with the cost of living crisis, deal with those NHS waiting lists, but don't neglect net zero. Of course, there is a public debate, one that you'll observe, not take part in necessarily, about whether the, some of these climate change initiatives can deliver lower bills. And the way the system is structured at the mm -hmm. moment with energy prices uh, of electricity, for example, linked to wholesale gas, uh, meaning that uh, some of the more cost-effective ways of delivering uh, uh, electricity don't necessarily uh, result in lower bills uh, because of the way the market functions and maybe that's a challenge for officials as they frame legislation and the rules of uh, the rules of engagement. Totally there are so many factors at play and I was looking at LinkedIn earlier today Graham and one of my colleagues at COP27 doing a rundown of some of the debates there and it is quite overwhelming when you look at the scale of the challenge and all of the different factors at play whether it's energy costs or or other things, whether it's green skills, whether it's retrofitting homes, everything. It is a massive, massive challenge. OK, now the report also looks at three accelerators that could help uh, power the future of government. So talk us through those. Yeah, OK. So in our interviews with, with 54 public sector leaders, we ended each of them by saying, tell us about your vision for the future. What kind of organisation do you want to be leading by 2030, just by the end of this decade. And the answers we heard back were really, really compelling visions for the future. They were really energizing, really optimistic and ambitious. And there were some areas of consensus in what all of those public sector leaders talked to us about. So when we reflected on them, we said, well, we think there's probably three accelerators, if you like, that could power the sector forward to that kind of future it wants to see. And the first accelerator we said is that government needs to think post-digital. Now, if you think about it, digital is pervasive now. It's in everything that we do. It's in everything that we use. So you can't really afford to just come up with a strategy and then bolt on a digital strategy on the top of it. It's got to be inherent in what you do. So in a sense, we live in this post-digital world. So we say that government and public sector need to think about that if they're going to grasp the potential of the newer technologies like artificial intelligence, the kind of stuff that the big online retailers and services, the Amazons and Netflix of this world are using. So that was Accelerator 1, Think Post-Digital. The second was about leadership and building trust. Now, we talk in the report a lot about the importance of trust in the public sector. And we've seen in our survey that trust in some ways in government has gone down. So we say that leadership needs to be built at every level across the sector and it needs to focus on rebuilding trust. Because if you think about it, trust in the public sector 
isn't just a worthy political sentiment. Uh, it's a license to operate and it has real world consequences if it's absent. Look at policing, for example. Policing relies on public trust to do its job. So that's the second accelerator. And the third was optimising for delivery. It's been said in our report for a number of years that government kind of prioritises too much. It tries to do too much. So we've said that government needs to prioritise better and it needs to gear itself up for delivery. We have some of the best policy making in the world in our civil service. We need to get the delivery capability up to the same superb level as policy making. So three accelerators. And they are, they are really very helpful, big strategic guiders, uh, guidelines for people who are running public services. There was a, an interesting page where you looked at trust across government and public yeah. services and showed that throughout the entire UK, trust had gone down. And I suppose if, if you are the man in the street, a woman in the street who is dealing with public services, many of your interactions, whether it be applying for a passport or a driving license, or whether it be watching uh, the television on the migrants issue, or, 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 or for that matter, in an NHS waiting list or trying to visit your doctor, these yeah. are the frontline public services, very visible to you and with obvious post-pandemic problems. Yeah, they are. I mean, COVID has, has left an awful legacy for a lot of the public services. I mean, particularly, most obviously, those NHS waiting lists. But I think you're right, Graham, and, and that speaks to how you build trust. It's in people's everyday experiences. Uh, if you go and have a good experience applying for that passport online, and it's an incredible system now, you will you will leave that with more trust in the authorities that do that. So I think a, a lot of it is in your day-to-day -day interactions. I think we also have to be mature enough to, to acknowledge it's the politics as well. Politics is the shop window, isn't it, for yeah. government and public services. And when you see levels of political instability, it's bound to have an effect. Absolutely. And, and just to, to, to end, there was some interesting reporting in one of the broadsheet newspapers the other day, pointing out that the NHS has had a large uh, input of money in recent years, post-pandemic, and that it's treated 5.3% fewer people in the year since uh, uh, compared to the year before the pandemic. Uh, and if you look at a bit of data like that, and then you look at the cost of living crisis forcing in, or causing an industrial dispute with nurses, it's quite possible that next week, next year, when you publish the State of the State report, some of these indices could be gloomier before they get better. It's possible. I mean, productivity in the public sector is of itself an enormous debate. I mean, and, and we have in the UK relatively struggled with productivity issues over the years, but we know the things that drive it. It's skills, it's good infrastructure, it's good use of technology, that kind of stuff. I think productivity is a really useful lens to look at the, the public sector, but you have to take a wider, wider view as well. And you have to think about how you're measuring it. It's amazing how many people have said things like, oh, we're, not, we're all more productive if we're remote working. Well, actually, no, that's not necessarily true. Somebody said to me, well, you're not commuting, you're more productive. Well, actually, no, I'm starting work earlier. That's mm -hmm. not a productivity gain, that's me doing more. That's, that's right. the opposite of a productivity gain. So I think you need to be cautious about how it's measured and look at the wider economy as well as just the, the public sector. But productivity is a useful lens as well. Well, Ed, it was great to talk to you last year about this report. And this year, it is, it is becoming a staple 
uh, for people involved in the public services or for that matter any of our viewers who contract with the public services because it will give them an insight into the challenges and the uh, the issues that public leaders are actually facing. Thank you very much. I'll just remind our viewers it's called The State of the State. Ed, I presume if you look at the Deloitte website, you can get a link to it. Absolutely. Or just, just Google Deloitte State of the State. You'll find it nice and easy. Thank you very much. Next week, Business Unmuted will be presented by my colleague Nikki Jolly, uh, because I'm not, a, not around next week. But do join us and we'll see what people thought of that budget this autumn.